Thanks for joining us today. My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. And today, we're in our second week in our new series, our summer series called The Pursuit. And if you weren't with us last week, let me just remind you what we're trying to do in this series. So Jesus said, Matthew 28, Jesus gave us this ultimate commission, this commandment as his people. He said, go make disciples. And so... He, he called us to invite other people to follow him. And not just that, but then also to help those people to learn how to do that in life, how to follow him, how to live for him, how to put that into practice in their lives. And so that's what we call disciple making. And so we're called to be involved in that, to be invested in that. It's our purpose, not just as a church institutionally, but it's our purpose as individual believers, followers of Christ, is to Go make disciples and to be part of that in our lives. But the question that comes up then is how do you do that? But Alpine, we do that individually. We do it in small groups. We do it in families. And we want to help you understand what that means. In your life, to be a disciple of Jesus, not a disciple of a church or a spiritual leader or an a ideology or, or any other thing, but to be a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, we want to help you understand what that looks like, what that means. And that's what we're doing in this series, the basics of, of, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But we also want to help you understand how you can be invested in that process in the lives of other people. It's a great privilege. If you've ever had that opportunity, then you know what a great privilege and a great exciting uh, thing it is to be used by God to have influence and, and encouragement in the life of somebody else that changes their life. And so there's really two kinds of people that we want to share this series with. One is, if you're new to the whole Jesus and God thing and the whole Christianity thing and that we want to help you understand what that's all about and, and what it means to, to know who Jesus is and, and, and to embrace him in your life. So maybe you're still exploring that. Maybe you're still figuring out, is this a valid approach in life? Is this, is this legit? Or maybe you're coming from a, whole, a totally different uh, faith background and you need a reset, and you're going like, I need help to figure out like what was from that and what's from the Bible, and, and help me to, to kind of remake the foundation of my spiritual life. Or maybe you've recently made a faith decision. You said, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but you're still learning what that means in the implications for your life. If, if that applies to you, then, then this series is for you. This is going to give you a framework, a template to understand the life that, you, that you're exploring and that you're beginning to lead. But then some of you guys have been Christians for much longer. You've already made that faith decision maybe years ago. But you haven't ever actually had the opportunity to invest personally in someone else, to make a disciple in an individual, an actual real-life person. Maybe you've been faithful in the church, faithful in ministry, kids' church, whatever it is that you've done, and we're so thankful for that. We appreciate you, that investment that you've made, but we're going to say, look, there's, a, there's something else that God wants to bless us with as Christ followers, and that's the opportunity, the privilege of mentoring somebody else in the faith, whether it's our kids, our family, whether it's someone that we, that we meet, that we know, a friend, or someone that, that is basically, you know, kind of you're hooked up at the church. Whatever it is, we want to help make sure you know how to do that. And so I want to ask you, if that's the category you're in, to really pay close attention during this series, because as you master those basics, 
then you'll have much greater confidence to know what to share and how to share it with other people that God brings into your life. And so this is a chance for you to build that foundation as a, potentially as a mentor. And so last week we began the series by talking about how God wants to be found by us. What a gracious God that he wants us to know him. He wants us to be in relationship with him. He's inviting us toward himself. And today I want to build on that by helping you understand that, that this God who wants to be known by us has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, but he's revealed himself in the Bible. That's how we know who Jesus is and what he did. He, that's how we know God's heart. That's what we know, how, know what God is like. He's revealed himself in the Bible, and so we're going to talk about the Bible today. As we put it early in the, in the series because it's so foundational, can we trust what the Bible says? Is the Bible relevant today? Is it reliable today? And so we're going to look at three reasons uh, to trust the Bible. See, because everything else that we say in this series is based on what the Bible says. We're going to quote the Bible a lot. Everything that we know about how to follow Jesus is based on what the, what the Bible says. And so we've got to come to grips with this fundamental question. Is the Bible trustworthy? Can we build it, our lives on it? Is it the authority that we ought to follow? Because here's the thing. We all follow some authority in life. I don't mean like your boss telling you what to do. I mean the thing that we look to in our life for what we believe is real and true and right. And the, thing, the, voice, the voices that we look to in our life that we say, here's how I'm going to live. Here's how I'm going to evaluate that issue. We all have some authority. So, so who is your authority? Who has that been in the past? Has it been a church and you do what the church tells you to do? Has it been just tradition? You have family traditions, cultural traditions. Say, no, I'm not going to go against my traditions. Is it the masses around us that say, you know, this is what everybody thinks is the right thing to do and take your cues from society and from the culture? Is it a political system that is dictating to you how to think about everything in life and telling you what is real? For most Americans today, to be honest, the final authority is just themselves. And most Americans think, here's how I know what's real and right and true because it makes me feel good or because that's what I prefer. But for Christians, our final authority is God. And so God is the one who defines reality. God defines truth. Reality is whatever God sees, however God sees the universe. And so how we know what God thinks and how we know his authority is because he's spoken to us in his word, the Bible. So, so consider this in a minute how this, for a second how this works. Think of all the tough issues that face our society today. Controversial issues that people are debating about and so forth. How do you know what to think? How do you know what, where to go on those issues? For me, it's, it's what the Bible says. And so... Just whatever, what I believe in, in what I practice and my attitudes, for example, about money, as much as I can, they're, they're derived from the Bible. Okay, so when it comes to race and, and the relations between different races and how, how we understand race as a factor in culture today, I'm trying as best I can for that to be based on what the Bible says about human beings and about race. When you think about economic and social justice, I'm trying to derive that from not from some political system or some theory, but I'm trying to derive it from the Bible. When we talk about abortion, we talk about marriage, we talk about 
um, sexual behavior and sexual ethics. We talk about gender and, and all the rest the, to the best of my ability and say, I'm going to try to follow what the Bible says about those things because God has spoken in the Bible. And so it's important as we start this series, if we're going to think about it that way, it's important that we have to be able to trust the Bible. Is it trustworthy? Is it really the, the thing that we want to put all of that weight of our whole lives and our whole thoughts on? And there's a lot of reasons why we can trust the Bible. Way more than I have time to go into today. Today I'm just going to touch on three main things to help you understand that you can have confidence when we talk from the Bible in, as disciples of Jesus. The first one is historical evidence. A lot of aspects of this, but in a nutshell, we're looking at ancient manuscripts and archaeological evidence that, that stack up in the favor of biblical authority. Anybody can write a book, and write, and they can just say, you know, it's true. But especially when it's a book that, that claims to reflect history, or it claims to be embedded in actual timeline and actual places, how do you test whether that is true? Well, ancient books like the Bible and others, are tested, we say, historically. So that includes things like the manuscripts. What, what, um, how, how many manuscripts are there? And, and what are the quality of those manuscripts that confirm this book that we say was written you know, centuries and centuries ago? How do we know? And so we're going to ask uh, two questions, and we're going to compare ancient writings that everybody trusts and pretty much takes for granted as being reliable, we're going to compare those to the Bible. We're going to ask how many and how reliable they are. So first of all, <clears throat> take Aristotle, for example. Aristotle, great, one of the greatest philosophers that ever lived, the ancient Greek philosopher. Um, how do we know what Aristotle really said, really wrote? How do we know that? Well, this, remember, this is before the printing press, right? And, and, and before the printing press, Every copy, if he wrote something out and we have, and, and it disseminated at all, then it was copied by hand and copies were made of those copies and so forth. So we, these are the manuscripts that reflect the original. So with Aristotle, there are 49 total manuscript copies of Aristotle's writings uh, in existence. How about Homer? Homer wrote the Iliad. This is the story of the Trojan War, right? You saw that movie, right? Homer wrote the Odyssey, this ancient literature. Well, there are uh, 643 manuscript copies of Homer's works available. Now, remember, for all those ancient texts, there's no originals. We only have copies. Nobody has an original of Aristotle or in his own writing or an original of Homer or the Bible as well. But for the Bible, here's the difference. For the New Testament, there are almost 5,700 different manuscripts, uh, copies of the Bible in Greek, the original language. Now, they're not all the whole Bible, but they are at least fragments or portions of the Bible. We have this in these incredible number of witnesses to what the Bible actually originally has said. And there's over 19,000 copies in, uh, translated from the Greek into other ancient languages. And so for, there's far more manuscript evidence for the Bible than there is for any other ancient book. Now the second question then is, well, how reliable are those manuscripts? How do we know that the copies 
faithfully reflect the original, right? How do you know that the copies um, of Aristotle weren't changed or tampered with, or of the Bible, of Homer, or, or Caesar, or any of those other ancient uh, manuscripts? How do we know they weren't tampered with or changed? That's a question of reliability. Well, first you need to know how the Bible, the Old Testament, was copied. So there was a whole community of, of scribes called the Masoretes. They, I don't know what that word means, but they, the text that they copied, what we have today, is called the Masoretic text. The, but they, they revered the word of God so highly that they made scrupulous rules, quality control, to make sure that no errors would creep in. And so their goal was no mistakes, so they created these strict rules. And so they're writing in ink on parchment, and if there was a, a mistake was discovered, they'd scrape the ink off the parchment entirely and start with a blank slate and completely begin again. And so the result of that process is demonstrated by the Dead Sea Scrolls. We'll look at that in just a moment. But for Aristotle, the earliest manuscripts that we had of Aristotle dated from about 1100 A.D. Aristotle lived and wrote about 350 B.C. There's almost 1,500 years of gap between um, them. And then uh, for the Masoretic text and the Bible, then the oldest copies that we had until recently were from about 800 A.D. So uh, to understand, that's about 1,500 years after, say, the book of Isaiah was written. So there's this huge gap but in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. They'd been put together by a, a Jewish community that lived in the desert of Palestine. And they, they, were, they had been hidden away in the arid climate and preserved because of the, the dryness. Um, virtually every Old Testament book is represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written about 150 B.C. So it closes the gap tremendously by you know, some, something like uh, 800, nine, almost 1,000 years. And so when, when scholars found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they began to work on them, they, they were really intrigued by the question of how much has, of, the, of the document has changed over, you know, almost 1,000 years of copying. How much has been altered in any way? So that was, that's a, a great question, but... The best preserved of all the Dead Sea Scrolls is a copy of Isaiah. And when I was in school, I had the privilege of being able to see a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Isaiah. Not the original parchment, but a, photostat, a photograph of it. And I was able to put it side by side to the current version of the Old Testament that people use today. And compare them side by side. And what we find is that there's like 95% identity between the two, the old and the new. Now, now 5% might seem like a lot. But when you look at all the, the variations in that 5%, they're, they're simple things like confusing one letter with another letter that looks like it. So, for, for example, in English, you have a lowercase n. looks very much like a lowercase h if you're not careful about drawing that, that stem up higher, right? Those are the nature of, of, the, of the variations in the Isaiah's text. And um, there are variations of spelling and a few grammar things. But in that 5% of variation, not one single thing that changes any meaning of anything that Isaiah wrote. There's no question or doubt at all what Isaiah is conveying to us, that the nature of the variation is so trivial. And so we have this tremendous confidence 
in the Bible that we have today. Now, one more thing about history and about archaeology. Now, last month, um, Sally and I got a chance to travel. We were in England, and um, we got to visit the British Museum in London. And there we saw artifacts from all of these specific civilizations that are named and talked about in the Bible. Rome and Egypt and Greece and Assyria and Babylon and all the things that the Bible gives us a lot of details about those things. These are real places that actually exist that are spoken of in the Bible. But to take it even one step farther, that monument that you see on the screen is a stone monument that it was erected by one of the kings of Assyria. And on there, he celebrates his victories over other nations. And specifically named on that stone monument, there are the names of kings of Israel that are named in the Bible. So the Bible has this incredible external confirmation that what it, really, what it says really is true. That wherever it can be tested against historical records against independent archaeological findings. Whenever the Bible can be tested, it's proven again and again and again and again to pass the test. We have this tremendous reasons for confidence in the Bible based on history, archaeology. So that's number one. Now that tells us that the Bible is reliable. The Bible tells the truth. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove that the Bible's from God. It's a start, right? Because it could, could be just a great, accurate historical book. But beyond that, is it really from God? Did God really give us the Bible? And so let's continue in looking at another form of evidence. We're calling it textual evidence. The Bible contains 66 books written by 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, yet it tells one unified story. And a big part of, let me tell you, a big part of that unified story is the fulfillment of prophecy, things written in one era that were fulfilled in another era that connect the whole narrative between the old and the new. And so if you think about, I'm just impressed by the scope of the Bible from a literary point of view. These 40 different authors lived in three different continents. They wrote in three different languages. They lived in uh, spanning multiple centuries. Uh, Most of them did not know each other. Some did, but most did not. And so they didn't collaborate together. They didn't get together and say, oh, okay, you say this, I'll say this, you know, like you're doing a presentation at work. they're, They're independent of each other, and yet they're unified. And so they represent this wide spectrum of personal, cultural, social backgrounds. Uh, for example, let's look, let's look at just a few of them. You have Moses. Moses was a Jewish slave who grew up in the household of Pharaoh. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He's steeped in both Jewish and, and Egyptian culture and is well-educated and all the rest. He wrote the first five books. Th- uh, 500 years later, we have David. David was uh, a Hebrew shepherd. He grew up in this small little town, and yet he became a warrior, a poet, a king. Very different from Moses. And then you go into the New Testament. You have a guy like Luke who was not Hebrew at all. He was Greek. And he was 
trained as a physician, highly educated as a physician, a thousand years after David. Now, he was contemporary with John. John wrote four books of the New Testament. John was just a fisherman from some backwater town in the middle of nowhere Israel. He was not educated. He was not sophisticated. He did not move in the halls of power and influence in Judaism. Compared to Paul, Paul was highly educated. He was a highly influential leader in Judaism. He was a trained uh, theologian. He was an activist. He was zealously uh, persecuting Christians before he came to know Jesus. So this is just a sample of the tremendous variety and the breadth of scope of the writers of the Bible. And yet, there is this tremendous unity in the Bible's message. It's consistent. It builds on itself. Each part makes sense in light of the whole. And from the very beginning to the very end, it tells one common story, the story of Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he did when he came. That unity, to me, that strongly suggests that there's one voice, one mind, behind all the variety of human voices in the authors of Scripture, that there's ultimately one voice that God used human writers to convey his thoughts, his purpose, his will through the whole Bible. And that unity is, I think, very powerfully demonstrated through, again, this idea of fulfilled prophecy, where there were future events that were foretold by certain writers hundreds of years before the fact, and then other writers later, independent of those initial writers, generations later, reported on the, then the fulfillment of those ancient prophecies. So let me give you just a couple of examples. In Genesis chapter 49, it says of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, Judah was one of them. Judah, nothing special about Judah. But it says, the prophecy says, the scepter, that's the, ru- the rule power, ruling power, will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So it says this future ruler is going to come from the tribe of Judah and he's going to be acknowledged and honored by, by the whole world. Well, Matthew chapter 1 gives us the genealogy of Jesus, and you can see it traces all the way back to where? To Judah. He's from one particular tribe. Okay, okay, maybe that's a coincidence. I don't know. There's a lot of people who are from the tribe of Judah, right? But let's narrow it down a little bit. In Micah chapter 5, 800 years before, Micah foretold that Jesus would be born in this little backwater town, this little place in the middle of nowhere, Israel. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf, says God. So this is this not just any ruler, but, but one with this incredible backstory, this, this uh, eternal kind of origin And Luke chapter 2 tells us how that exactly happened. So Luke 2 says, you know, Jesus' mother didn't even live in Bethlehem. Why was she there to give birth to her son? Well, God orchestrated all of the events of history, including the Roman Emperor Augustus, to create this census. So God is moving in history to get Mary and Joseph to the place at just the right time for Jesus' birth to fulfill this prophecy. Humanly speaking, nobody could have foreseen. In Micah's day, nobody could have foreseen that the Roman Empire would even exist. 
or what, what would happen in those days. And, you know, after the fact, again, humanly speaking, nobody could go back and say, oh, we're going to orchestrate this situation so that we can make sure the prophecy gets fulfilled. That, that's just not going to happen. Now, there's a lot of prophecies about Jesus' death and, and what happened on the cross. So Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My enemies surround me. They've pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. That predates Jesus by a thousand years, yet it's incredibly, amazingly accurate about details of his final days, things you can read about in the Gospels. Isaiah 53 is the same way. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so that we could be whole, whipped so that we could be healed, unjustly condemned. He was led away, buried like a criminal, put in a rich man's grave. There's this incredible specificity that connects so closely to events 700 years later. You know, it's that specificity that amazes me. Like, have you ever read like any of the things like from Nostradamus? Or like these other so-called prophets, guys like Edgar Cayce and other. They're so generic, so general, that you could just about make them fit any fulfillment. But here, these, this is incredibly specific. This is either going to happen or it's not. And when it does, it gets your attention. Because fulfilled prophecy can really only happen if the book has a divine origin. Because only an all-knowing supreme God can actually make that happen the way that, he's, that he said it was going to happen. So prophecy, to me, is one of the very strongest points of evidence that this is actually God's word for us. It's not just historically reliable and accurate, which it is. But more than that, it's God's word for us today and that's why the Bible takes precedence over every other source of authority, every other voice that's telling us what's real and what's right. Now, because of these kind of prophecies, Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day. In John chapter 5, he says, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus had it right. Those Bible prophecies... All of them point directly to him. That unity of the Bible over all of these centuries and all of these authors, all of that points to him. He is its central character. He is its central message. It's God's message, and I want you to know that we can count on it. We can have confidence in what God has said. Now, there's one more kind of evidence I want to look at today. Again, we don't have time to talk about all the different aspects of this stuff, so I'm just giving you a taste. But this is one of the most powerful evidence to me. It's the personal evidence. It's the changed lives of his followers that provides this compelling reason to believe. The changed lives that result from the Bible. The Bible is not just ink on a page. It's not like any other book. There's a supernatural dimension, dynamic to the Bible. It's living. It's powerful. It's active. It's like a sword in the hands of the Holy Spirit that it has the power to pierce into our inner life and into our motives and our, and, and our attitudes and our heart in a way that other literature does not because it's able then to bring about these potential transformations in human life and human character. And countless people throughout history have found this true. I mean, I've read scores and scores of people's stories about how learning the Bible, believing the Bible, putting the Bible into practice has completely changed their existence. 
But let me just focus really quickly on, on three examples from the Bible itself of changed lives. Peter, Thomas, Paul. Peter, if you remember the story, you can read it on the screen. I'm not going to read all these for you, but you can see when Jesus was arrested, you might know this story that Peter denied him, denied even knowing him. Peter acted like a, a, a terrible coward that night. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, just days later, Jesus sat down with Peter over breakfast, and he restored him. He renewed him. He reinstated him and gave him this mission. And so Peter became on the heels of that failure, he became one of the great leaders of the early Christian church, and ultimately he actually gave up his life, courageously gave up his life for Jesus. Thomas was another one of those earlier core followers. Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to, his, to the men and women who were closest to him, and Thomas didn't, wasn't there that night. And so when they told him about it, they, he said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it till I see it. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas, Right? But, but soon enough, a few, a few days later, he met Jesus as well. And he saw the wounds. And he professed his faith in Jesus. He's, he says, wow, you really are Lord. You really are God. And, and Thomas also gave his life at, at later point for Jesus, for his faith in Jesus. And then there's the apostle Paul. Paul was a diehard religious Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee. And you can see in this verse, he has this unparalleled religious pedigree. He, he checked all the boxes of this just religious, like he had it all together. His life mission was to persecute followers of Christ. And then he met Jesus, and he became one of them himself. And a few verses later, he talks about how the entire orientation of his life was completely transformed. His value system was completely changed. His mission was transformed, where now he lived for no other reason than to spread the good news about Jesus. And he too died a martyr's death. So the message of Jesus is powerful. The message of the Bible is powerful because it is the word of God. Because at the heart of that message is the risen Lord Jesus himself. But let me, let me extend this thought for just a moment to the very kind of the next application of it. Because it's not just countless individuals that have been changed by the power of the word of God. It's whole cultures. The Bible has changed human culture. You take all of these individuals who are, who are touched by believing and practicing the Bible, you take them together as a conglomerate, then you have a whole culture, and the Bible has changed the cultures in the places where it has been adopted. I'm reading a book right now. It just happened to, to co coincide with the series. The book, is called, the, the book is called The Book That Changed Your World. And he's talking about the Bible. And he talks about how the Bible shaped the soul of Western civilization. And it's interesting, the author's not from Europe or from America, he, he's from India. He grew up and was raised in India, in Indian culture, so he has a completely a fresh take on Western civilization based on the Bible. But he, he documents in this book how the Bible has changed life in every culture that's adopted and followed and honored the Bible. Just three examples. I could give you a million examples because it's fresh on my mind, but just three things. Number one, the value of every person. The, the whole idea that every person has unalienable rights, that every person has dignity and worth, that's grounded in the Bible's teaching that all human beings are created in the image of God. 
And this author shows that even though that principle has eroded in um, Western civilization today, in our culture today, this whole idea of equal rights, this whole idea of, of justice and all the rest, this personal worth, that just does not occur in other cultures where the Bible has not shaped their thinking. Human beings are, you know, if they die, no big deal. If they just do slave labor, no big deal. It's in the biblical cultures that the, every person is seen as valuable. That leads to the second one. That's technology. Technology has developed in cultures that have, have honored the Bible. Because this, this guy from India, he contrasts Asian and Islamic cultures to cultures that were shaped by the Bible. And it shows that because of the creativity of the God of the Bible compared to the God that's gods and, and, phys, and, and spiritual beings worshipped in other cultures, the God of the Bible is this creative God. He gave us a commission to shape the world. And because of this biblical value of persons that we just mentioned, those are the reasons why European culture developed technology when other cultures did not. It was to improve the quality of life for ordinary people. And so why would you develop labor-saving technology if you just got uh, masses of slave labor and you don't care? Or if you just have all of these inferior castes whose job is to do all the dirty work? And then science. Asian and Islamic cultures never developed science. Now there's some people in, in those cultures who have observed nature and wrote about nature, but never developed this systematic approach to discovering the laws of nature. For example, in Hindu culture, he talks about how Hindus think that everything is illusion. It's in Maya, it's called. If everything is illusion and it's not really real, then why would you study it? Why would you try to make sense out of it? But in the Bible, you have a God who created everything, and so everything is unified, everything has purpose, and God's design can be discovered, and that's the impulse that launched modern science in Western civilization. So this is based on the Bible. The Bible has this powerful impact in the lives of individuals and cultures. So again, here's just a few. This is just a little bit of the evidence of why you can trust the Bible. The whole point of this is not that you just have an intellectual exercise. You say, I can, I can check off these boxes and answer on the test. The point of this is to say that in your daily life, in your whole approach to living, that you know that the Bible can be trusted and that it deserves to be the authority for how you think and how you live. But you know what? If you, even if you take the, these reasons, as compelling as they might be, there's no amount of evidence that, that can actually overcome an unbelieving attitude. That's why I hesitate to talk about proof, proofs for the Bible, because proof means what you make of it. If you're not willing to accept it, it's not proof, right? And so if your mind is already closed, then none of the evidence is going to make any bit of difference to you. Now, Jesus actually addressed that. Here's the relevance of the Bible, in fact, this one verse. Jesus addressed that in John 7. He says, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. Jesus says, if you're not willing to submit to God's authority, to submit to God's truth, to God's will, then your pursuit is over before it even started. But he says, if you are willing to follow where God leads, if you are willing to be open to the prospect that this is going to be life-changing, then you're going to discover the truth. 
Because the teachings of Jesus, in fact, the teachings of all of the Bible are from God, not from human beings. We can trust the Bible in our pursuit of God. We can trust the Bible in every aspect of our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you've spoken to us. You've made yourself known to us. Father, that, that you're not a God who just hides out in the obscure corners of the universe, but you became one of us. You said you wanted a relationship with us. So how do we know you, God? Well, you've spoken, you've revealed, and we have this, this, these words in print. We have this book that we can open anytime. So we pray, Father, to God, I pray that our response today would be that we know we could trust it. I pray that our response today, that Father, that we'd evaluate where we look to to understand life, to know what's true and real, where we look to to determine what's right, Father, and that we would replace any other authority in our lives with the authority of your word. Would you work that in us, Father God? Help us to see where we're drawing on other sources. Help us to see where we've bought into just our own preferences instead of what you say. Father, help us to shape and build our life, our worldview, on a firm foundation of what you have revealed so that we can become everything that you created us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.